0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Neuroscience CME Journal Club. The goal of each journal club is to evaluate the latest evidence in clinical literature and translate that evidence into improvements in the care of patients. CME Outfitters LLC is the accredited provider for this Neuroscience CME continuing education activity. This educational activity is supported by an independent medical educational grant from Shire. This activity is titled Child ADHD, Exploring Complexities of Care, Part 3. Our guest host for today's activity is Dr. Robert L. Finling. Dr. Finling is the Rocco L. Motto, M.D., Chair of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and the Director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at University Hospitals Case Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Finling has disclosed that he received or has received research support, acted as a consultant in or served on a speaker's bureau, for Abbott Laboratories, Adrenex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Biovale Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Forrest Laboratories Incorporated, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceutical Research and Development LLC, ChemPharm Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, H1beck Neurofarm NeuroPharm Group PLC, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Organon Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Santa Fe Aventus, Incorporated, Shire Pharmaceuticals, Solvay Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Sopernas Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Validius, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Today's featured author is Natalie Grazinko, MD, FRCPC. Dr. Grzynko is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University and medical chief of the Child and Adolescent Program at the Douglas Mental Health University Institute in Montreal, Quebec. Dr. Grazinko has no financial disclosures to report. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 405. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. Dr. Finling and Dr. Grazinko will be discussing and taking questions regarding an article in the Journal of Attention Disorders titled, Is the Inattentive Subtype of ADHD Different from the Combined Hyperactive Subtype? At the end of the CE activity, participants should be able to, one, interpret data supporting the likelihood that ADHD and subtype is a separate disorder from, rather than a subtype of, ADHD, and two, identify clinical implications associated with evidence that the ADHD and subtype differs from the ADHD combined hyperactive subtype in terms of comorbidity, treatment response, and possible etiological genetic and environmental factors. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at NeuroscienceCME.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's Journal Club.
1: Hello. It's uh, my pleasure to welcome you to today's Neuroscience CME Journal Club. I'm Dr. Robert Findling. I'm the Director of Child Adolescent Psychiatry at University Hospital's Case Medical Center, as well as a Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics. at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, and I'm real glad to be the moderator for this Neuroscience CME Journal Club uh, series uh, that's been focusing on uh, ADHD. Now, I- I'm joined today by Dr. Natalie Grisenko She is the uh, medical director of the Child and Adolescent Program at the Douglas Institute in Montreal, and she is also an associate professor of psychiatry at McGill. So uh, welcome, Dr. Grisenko and maybe to start things off, maybe I can just ask How would you get involved
2: in ADHD research? Of all the things to study, why ADHD? Okay, well, I'm really a clinician, first and foremost. And what I started doing was running a day hospital at the Douglas Institute. And we had the most difficult cases from the island of Montreal referred to us. And the vast majority of cases were ADHD cases. So that's what sort of got me started in looking at ADHD. And then we wanted to see what is most uh, effective with treating these children. So my original interest was in evaluation of uh, day treatment uh, efficacy. And what we noticed is that the vast majority of cases were were children with attention deficit disorder. Uh, so then we started looking at uh, treatment e- efficacy, we also started looking at what predicts which children would improve uh, with with various medications and with various treatment approaches and which ones would not.
1: All right. So now we've got a paper that you uh, have published in the uh, Journal of Attention Disorders and uh, it was uh, published online in September of this year perhaps you could talk uh, about some key issues regarding the study design choices and uh, you know the methods that you selected to help answer some of the questions that you just alluded to.
2: Mm -hmm. So what uh, what the paper tries to answer is whether attention deficit disorder inattentive subtype is different from the combined and hyperactive subtype. And what we try to do is to look at a number of key components. We looked at the symptoms, the comorbidity, treatment response, and possible etiology of uh, of the inattentive versus combined hyperactive type of uh, attention deficit disorder. For etiology, I'm, I'm look, we're looking mainly at genetic and environmental factors. Now what we did was we had 371 children that we recruited over nine years 298 males and 73 females, with an average uh, age of 9. They uh, were diagnosed via clinical interviews with a psychiatrist. We also had school reports, the Connors' uh, teachers' reports, the Connors' parents and the DISC. And what we found is that 54% of our sample was the combined type, 32% inattentive and 12% hyperactive. The exclusion criteria were um, an IQ of less than 70, pervasive developmental disorder, Tourette's, psychosis, or intolerance to methylphenidate. All the kids then went into a two-week uh, medication trial of, methy- of methylphenidate. We gave them 0.5 milligrams per kilogram in two divided doses. And what happened was the kids came in on day three or four into our lab and we assessed their acute response. So we used the RAS, which is a restricted academic situation scale by Barclay, the CPT-CGI, and number of executive functioning tests. And then we also asked the teachers to complete the Connors' teachers questionnaire, and that, was, um, that we got on Fridays, and then after having taken the uh, medication for the week. And then we also got the parents to complete the parents' Connors'. We also looked at a number of uh different parameters looking at comorbidity, uh stress during pregnancy using the Kenny McNeil questionnaire. We also looked at alcohol consumption during pregnancy, smoking, uh stress level and all, and all kinds of other factors such as the neonatal complications, hypoxia at birth um during the mother's pregnancy.
1: Two questions that I've got is one would be how did you determine the subtype of ADHD because it seems to be the crux of the whole study. And the mm-hmm. second one is you mentioned some genetic factors. And I, I think what I was wondering about is why did you pick those genes? Okay. Because uh, I think that would be very helpful for me to understand and perhaps our, leaders, uh, our, our, our listeners to understand as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing to understand is that our subtype, we took great care in determining subtype. What we based it on was interviews with the children and the parents, reports from the school, and the DISC. What we did was we used the DSM-IV criteria. So if you had six out of the nine criteria for the hyperactive impulsive, then they would be categorized as hyperactive. If If you had six out of nine in the inattentive subgroup, then they would be um, categorized as an attentive subtype.
1: It seems that these were not done capriciously, that a great deal of care oh, yes. uh, was taken before just lumping somebody into a category. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important as well, because sometimes uh, since this was the, the key distinguishing feature of these uh, patient groups, just getting a better sensibility of how you focused on this uh, in particular I, I think is
2: important. Mm-hmm, hmm
1: and if you can mention a couple of things about the uh, the genes that you specifically examined and why those genes have all, all the things to look at in the genome.
2: Okay. Basically what we did was we looked at genes that have been identified in the literature as related to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The ones that we focused on was the DAT gene, which is a dopamine transporter gene, the DRD4, which codes for the dopamine receptor, and the 5-HTT, which is for codes for the serotonin transporter. What's important to understand is that in the literature, it tends to point to certain um, alleles as being uh, involved in ADHD. But but the literature is not clear cut. So, for example. There's quite a bit in the literature on the DAT-1010 as being related to an increase in severity of uh, symptoms of uh, hyperactivity and attention. For example, the work of Waldman, he looks at the DAT-high-risk allele 1010 and how how it's associated with an increased number of hyperactive inattentive symptoms. Um, Then the... um, Curran for example had looked at the association of the L allele and hyperkinetic disorder, so more the the combined type. Um, But again what interests us is that the odds ratio of having uh, ADHD with these genotypes is is not all that high in the sense that these genotypes explain only a certain part of the likelihood of developing ADHD.
1: Gotcha, so there there, there is empiric evidence, but real lack of clarity about how much of the contribution was there. And and so that makes very good sense to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk a little about certainly the results of this very interesting study. Can you walk us through that a little bit?
2: Okay, so as far as the results, what we found is that the combined subtype and the hyperactive subtype were very similar with respect to a symptomatology. Uh, both groups tended to be male and younger, the more frequently male, uh, the percentage of them were more frequently males and females versus the inattentive type which were more the older females. Now um, The other thing is as far as comorbidity, the uh, hyperactive combined subtype, we tended to group the two together in the analysis afterwards because they were so similar in symptomatology. They had more conduct disorder than in the inattentive subtype. The other thing that was interesting is the response to treatment was very, very different. In the combined hyperactive subtype. We had 74% of our kids who had a very good response versus only 62% in the inattentive. Then we looked at uh, possible ideological factors and what we found is that uh, there was much more pregnancy stress in the combined hyperactive versus the inattentive. of the uh, combined hyperactive subtype versus 17% of the inattentive had pregnancy stress. Um, And the way in which we assessed uh, stress during pregnancy was in a very clear cut fashion. We used the Kinney McNeil questionnaire to start. Then we also had uh, inter well, we had interviews with the mother to do the Kenny McNeil. We also then interviewed a significant other person in the life of um the mother when she was pregnant, so the husband or the mother of the mother. Uh to to make sure that that the data that were the, the information that we were gathering was correct, and then we also supplemented this by uh, reports, obstetric reports, and reports done by the um, uh, by the mother's physician while she was pregnant. The other things that came out that was quite interesting as far as genetics was that there was no difference in the subtype with respect to the DAT genotype and the DRD4, but there definitely was with respect to the 5-HTT. So this is again the, uh, the gene that codes for the serotonin transporter. And we found like in the literature that the LL genotype was associated with combined hyperactive subtype 39% of the combined hyperactive versus 17% in the inattentive. The last thing that we did that was very interesting was we looked at the LL genotype and a history of maternal stress during pregnancy and we saw that there was an interaction. What we found is that having both the LL genotype and a history of maternal stress during pregnancy confers an 8.4 higher risk for developing the combined hyperactive subtype of ADHD in males. So quite
1: a lot of findings. So to put it all together, again, since you did allude to the fact that mm-hmm. both you and I are clinicians first, let's perhaps talk a little bit about the clinical
2: relevance of all these findings and what it, what it means to us as c patients Okay, well, to put it all together, it looks like the combined hyperactive versus the inattentive subtype seem to be very different entities. They're different from the point of view of symptomatology, comorbidity, treatment response, and etiology. Now, what does that mean? From the point of view of research, this can explain to a certain extent why there's been such a discrepancy in findings why um, certain uh, research uh, teams have found certain genotypes to be more important, others have found other ones to be more important because really what you're doing is you're combining two different um, entities into one and in one you might have certain genotypes that are more important or certain environmental factors that are more important and in the other one you might have another one and, and it might sort of cancel out the effect. Um, As far as clinically, one of the reasons why it's very important is that hopefully in the future, this would help us understand the pathophysiology of ADHD and perhaps tailor-make treatment approaches to the different subtypes of ADHD. So both from the point of view of psychopharmacology but also uh, just therapeutic uh, approaches.
1: Now, certainly one of the things that I think pops up a lot, particularly when we're talking about ADHD and attentive type, uh, are patients with a slow cognitive tempo versus, let's say, ADHD and attentive type. Could you speak a little bit uh, to that and uh, that patient population within the context of uh, this research?
2: Okay, that's, that's a very interesting question the concept of slow cognitive tempo was first came up in nineteen eighty eight by Leahy and he discussed he described a subgroup of kids who were sluggish, drowsy, forgetful, not hyperactive, not impulsive. What uh later he and Barclay talked about is that in the inattentive subtype of ADHD. You have two different components. One is the slow cognitive tempo kids and the other subgroup is kids with subclinical combined type. So, they don't quite meet the criteria to be combined, but they they do have symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity. What we did actually in another study was we looked at kids with a slow cognitive tempo to try to see if they are uh, in any way um, different from the inattentive type in their symptomatology, their response to treatment and sort of the, uh, the possible ideological factors. And what we basically found is that the slow cognitive tempo kids tended to be even less externalizing, less severe symptomatology on the corners, uh than the inattentive type. There were also even more frequently females. And there was even less pregnancy stress in this subgroup and even less LL genotypes. So it seems to be um, an even more refined way of looking at the difference in um, subtypes, and it's even it's even more of a specific subtype than the inattentive type.
1: Gotcha. So it's, it may actually be a, yet another way of, that we're lumping things together. That's right. Uh, that could also confound things. Mm -hmm. And and again, in the interest of time, since we only have a little over a minute or so left, uh, one of the other findings that I found real interesting was the whole notion of uh, stress during pregnancy coming up as a a consideration in this work and actually a key finding of your study. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you think that means and any, any more on that topic?
2: Okay. Well, we know through the literature that stress during pregnancy does have major implications in the uh, development of the brain. For example, um, we know that through animal models that stress during pregnancy leads to an excessive neuroendocrine response to stress. There's delays in neurodevelopment. There's decrease in hippocampal volume, decreased neurogenesis, decreased dendritic uh, arborization in the cortex. The other thing is in human studies, we know that it can lead to a constriction of the uterine artery, decreased fetal blood flow. Um, and also, the other thing that's important is that when you have in the placenta what's called the 11 beta hydroxy steroid dehydrogenase, it's an enzyme that transforms cortisol, the maternal cortisol, to cortisone. Cortisol is very destructive for the developing brain, it can um, it can dysregulate the hippocampal uh, thalamic um, axis, uh, it has an impact on the developing of the brain. When there is too much stress that the mother exhibits, the enzyme cannot transform all of the cortisol into the cortisone so it really does have an effect on the developing brain. Now, what we've shown is that uh, in a previous study is that mothers who experience maternal stress during pregnancy, the children who have ADHD have more severe symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And in this study, what was interesting is that we found that there was an interaction of a certain genotype, again, the 5 htll genotype, and maternal stress, and that leads to an increased probability of the combined hyperactive subtype. And there the were more severe symptoms. Uh, so,
1: so, again, there's a lot more to this than certainly meets the eye. But, uh, Dr. Kozanko, certainly I want to thank you uh, for sharing your insights with us today. I, you've answered all my uh, questions that I've had, but I think it's time now. Uh, To open up the lines to our listeners And uh, let's give them the uh, chance To ask you some questions as well
2: It would be my pleasure Okay
1: So While we're waiting to take audience questions I'd like to let our audience know That there are additional online resources (coughs) And those can be found at www.neurosciencecme That's one word Now, at the conclusion of this question and answer session, uh, you'll be automatically redirected to the site, and I certainly encourage you to uh, take advantage of uh, this uh, evidence-based resources. Uh, And believe it or not, we've already got a couple of questions, and they seem to be clustering at least so far on uh, two key themes. So uh, are you ready for me, Dr. Grzynko? I'm definitely ready. Excellent. So the first one uh, really seems to be focusing on, uh, I think, the... uh, effects of stress during pregnancy. So uh, the first question, I guess, would be what kind of um, – how did you collect the stress-related uh, questions about women during their pregnancy for this study?
2: Okay. Well, what we did <coughs> was first we interviewed the mothers, and we used a questionnaire called the Kinney McNeil, which is a questionnaire that assesses overall um, – history of what happened to the mother during the pregnancy and during the delivery of the child. Uh, It includes also questions on stress that the mother experiences. So we, we went into detail about every little life event that the mother may have had. Then what we wanted to do is to make sure that what the mother told us was correct, that she wasn't forgetting things or or exaggerating certain situations. So what we did was we interviewed separately, and it's very important that it was separate, uh, a significant other in the life of the mother while she was pregnant. So it was, in most cases, it was the husband. And in some cases where the husband was not in the picture, it was the uh, maternal grandmother, so the mother of the mother. And thirdly, what we did was we went and we got records from the uh, obstetricians and also from whoever the uh, gynecologist or the GP who was treating the mother while she was pregnant. And we looked in the chart to see if there's any record of uh, having experienced any stress during pregnancy that the mother may have had. Well, I hope that you. answers the question. Yeah,
1: um, if somebody wanted to get their hands on the questionnaire to which you alluded, how could they do such a thing?
2: The best way is to email me at grannette at Douglas ca. Perfect. Now I'm going to be on holidays, so if they can email me in the new year, in January. Okay. So I'll be sure to get it.
1: Good. That's wonderful. And and then the only question I would ask you are, uh, again, more back to – Stress during pregnancy. Did it seem to affect both genders equally or were boys seemingly more sensitive than girls? What did what did you find about stress during pregnancy?
2: Yeah, that that's actually a very, very interesting question, in the sense that we know that uh the male fetus is much more sensitive to any kind of insult during pregnancy than the female fetus. And, you know, we know through the literature that there's more in spontaneous abortions when there's uh, uh, high stress or when there's some kind of problems during pregnancy. It's much more frequent that it's the uh, male fetus that is aborted than the female fetus. So what, what happened was that in the category where we ha- had high stress, there was an excessive representation of females than in the moderate stress. So it looks like, but again, we don't have enough of a a large N to say this, but it looks like the the female uh, fetus is uh, more resilient. So what happened in the uh, study that we published on pregnancy is that it was it was really the moderate stress that was most significant in determining uh the, the severity of psychopathology of the um ADHD symptomatology in the kids so the rationale behind that is that it was um uh, the that the um the the more severe stressed kids the kids that that experienced the greatest severity of stress, there was a greater proportion of females. And we also know that the females tend to have less severe symptoms uh, of ADHD than the males. So therefore, there was a little bit less, uh, not as much of of an increase in symptomatology in in the severe stress, but there was a very, very high increase in the moderate
1: stress group. Now, does this, again, you mentioned some gender differences and certainly that's important. Um, How do you think this falls into play in two ways? First of all, as far as how much of this does it play into the role of the etiology of ADHD, Uh, obviously besides genetics, do you think? And, and, And does stress during pregnancy influence any treatment decisions that you've come across in your work so far?
2: Okay. Well I'll answer the first last question first, in the sense that, as far as treatment decisions, I think what the crying need is to address uh stress during pregnancy so for example, we as clinicians have to be very very, very much aware of what mothers are going through during the pregnancy and develop and work with our government to develop policies and programs to really uh, try to to give support to mothers that are pregnant. Now as far as etiology, how would it play into etiology? Um, I'm not sure we have the data to be able to answer that. I think uh, what is clear is that there is this interaction between certain genotypes, and there is an interaction between um, pregnancy stress and it does seem to increase the symptomatology mainly of um, of of hyperactivity impulsivity but not just ADHD symptomatology, but also just a, an overall reactivity of the child. These are children that uh, are very overly reactive to situations around them. So these would look more like sort of the combined type of ADHD. Got you. And and now
1: now, now certainly um, along those same sort of things. If I let's say I gave you two scenarios that somebody asked. Uh, Actually, a couple people asked, if I told you there were functional neuroimaging differences between the two subtypes that we talked about today, would you be surprised?
2: Uh, No, I would not be surprised. Uh, Should it be done? Absolutely. I think what our lab is now looking at is we're looking at children with inattention and children with... um, combined ADHD and we're looking at um executive functioning in these two types of kids and so far uh there's not really that much that um comes out but I think what will be important is to look at the combined males together with the combined in a, uh, t- together with the inattentive males and then compare them on um Executive functioning and neuroimaging, and possibly functional MRIs, so looking at the, the functioning of the brain in the scanner during the time that they're given certain tasks to do. And the same thing applies for females. It should be, uh, you know, females with the combined type and females with the inattentive type that should be compared together.
1: So you certainly clearly or uh, wouldn't be surprised if there was a difference using MRI as a research tool. Um, do you think there's a role for any imaging studies in the day-to-day care of a child with
2: ADHD, either diagnostically or therapeutically at this point? No, I really don't think so. There is so much variation in every ch- child. There's so much variation in the different subcategories. There's so much variation in the kids that respond versus kids that do not respond. And also there's so much variation because it's hard to get a proper functional MRI of a child who's hyperactive. I mean, we've been scanning kids here for a long time and they move around a lot. So we have a lot of problems in that our data is not uh, very clean. Right, so, so, I but, but, as far as to use uh any kind of neuroimagery as a diagnostic tool as a tool that would determine how effective treatment is, we're not there yet,
1: okay, so let me ask you then the other sort of side of things, which is something that you've already alluded to, which is why do you think we're having such a hard time finding differences between groups on neuro? Uh, cog or neuropsychological batteries, um, because certainly clinically they look different. Uh, you alluded to the other findings, but yet on cognitive batteries, we we struggle.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things is that uh, we have when we're looking at neuropsychological batteries and neuropsychological functioning you have to look at specific symptoms. So, for example, uh, a child who is very uh, slow to respond, has a slow cognitive tempo, might look somewhat different from one that is overly stimulated, overly uh, motivated or overly involved. But the, the problem is that with the combined type of inattention, of ADHD. You have both inattention and you have motor hyperactivity. In the inattentive type, you have inattention. You don't necessarily have the motor hyperactivity. So both of them have the same amount of um, uh, of of, a, of inattention that's present. So you're not differentiating on that. What you are differentiating on is more motor hyperactivity, which would not necessarily be picked up with the neuropsychological batteries.
1: So it may be, again, heterogeneity within the population as well as sensitivity of the test that in combination confound the ability to detect the differences.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, that that makes good sense. So uh, a couple of questions popped up about slow cognitive tempo. And again, uh, there's so many questions, I want to try to at least cover the key themes so our uh, Uh, people who've been kind enough to put these in um, get some of their questions answered. Mm -hmm. So is slow cognitive tempo uh, a subtype of ADHD, inattentive type, or is it its own diagnosis? Can you talk a little about its relationship with ADHD and uh, ADHD inattentive
2: type? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that slow cognitive tempo is a subcategory of the inattentive type. Within the inattentive Uh, category, you have to have six out of nine criteria, right? And you don't have any symptoms of the motor hyperactivity or the impulsivity. But there are a number of cases that are uh, sub-threshold for motor hyperactivity. So they might reach, for example, five out of the nine criteria. And so they would be classified as inattentive but it would really be um sort of a mixed batch. I think what the slow cognitive tempo tries to do as a category is to take away this 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 um sub threshold combined type and come up with more of a pure um just inattentive category of kids. Um, I mean, these are kids that are described as being confused in a fog, daydreaming constantly, staring blankly, uh, very slow to to react, lacking energy. So you, you see the picture that it's very different from the hyperactive child that's always running around. But both of these kids have problems with attention. Sure. So it's a subtype of the detention
1: mm-hmm. uh, type. So let me ask you, sort of along those same lines, back to treatment, because everyone gets faced with these youngsters. Um, what questions do you ask to sort of help delineate the presence or absence of slow cognitive tempo in your practice? And what are your treatment approaches for those youngsters with a, who clearly have ADHD uh, but of a certain clinical presentation compared to perhaps other children? And what, how do you manage this both diagnostically and therapeutically?
2: Mm hmm. Well, diagnostically, what we have done uh, is we've used criteria that have been used in the literature to describe slow cognitive tempo. So it's various questions that I just actually mentioned that are uh, picked up from the um, the Achenbach or the, the Child Behavior Checklist. So being confused, being in a fog, daydreaming, um, staring blankly, underactive, uh lacking energy. So we supplement and we what we usually do is we ha- we require two out of the, the categories that I've mentioned in the, the, the behavior and child behavior checklist, uh along with um a lower rating on the uh on the impulsivity and on the hyperactivity. So instead of a cutoff of being six, we might take the cutoff as being four. Four out of nine symptoms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, as far as um, treatment approaches, what um, what we have found is that the slow cognitive tempo do tend to respond to psychostimulants. Uh, they often, when they do respond, they require a lower dose. This is very similar to the work that was done um By other authors, uh, where they found that it doesn't take as large a dose of medication. So, for example, Barclay and DePaul also said that it doesn't take as. And Stein, they've also said that it doesn't take as large a a large uh, a dose of uh, sex stimulants to get a response. But what we do find is that there's a lesser percentage of these kids that do tend to respond to medication. Now, what do we do? Well, we do the same approach of medication, but we also s- uh, tend to emphasize working with the children to have them pick up on techniques of being able to focus a bit more. So, learning to uh, sit in the, be- in the front of the classroom, not uh, not be as much distracted by everything else around them, uh, get a good night's sleep. That's very, very important because if these kids don't sleep well they're much more inattentive. Um, but your certainly approaches are
1: extend certainly beyond pharmacotherapy. Absolutely. Okay, and, and, and but it sounds like in many ways the your approaches for these this patient group overall sounds pretty similar to other youngsters who have difficulties with an attention and focus.
2: Yes, it is. Uh we use we try the same combinations of medications and we try the same sex like, social approaches as we would with other children with ADHD. But again, it, what, what I always tend to underline is that every child responds differently. So if one approach doesn't work, if one uh, medication doesn't work, it's well, we're trying another one. Gotcha. And you know, with, with uh with trying various approaches, you do hit upon something that works quite well.
1: Now, now one of the things that, you know, is as you talk about different approaches, but also the breadth of the uh, presentation, um, oftentimes people ask questions about uh, concerns about um overdiagnosis of ADHD, and mm-hmm. uh, certainly I would presume you have, uh, you're in Canada, yes? Yes. <laughs> so I'm wondering what the Canadian perspective about uh, the overdiagnosis or concerns about overdiagnosis or over treatment would yeah. happen to be.
2: Well, I think concerns are always there, but are they justified? Are they warranted? I don't necessarily think so. I think the reason why is that we're much more aware of what attention deficit disorder is, schools are much more aware, Uh, teachers are much more aware. So parents tend to get referred for an evaluation more frequently than they had been in the past. If you look at, at least in Canada, we have data on uh, medication usage. And the medication usage of psychostimulants is still way below the 68% of the population of children. Uh, I mean, 68% of, of children do have a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And there's only about 1% of the population of kids that that are on psychostimulants. So it's way, way, way below the amount that epidemiologically we would expect to be out there.
1: Okay. So, you know, back in sort of that thing, since we are talking a little bit about medicines now, um, at least in the States, atomoxetine, mm-hmm. methylphenidate-based compounds, and amphetamine-based compounds are uh, approved by our regulatory agency for treatment mm-hmm. of ADHD pharmacologically in children. Um, so your study in particular focused on methylphenidate. Why methylphenidate as opposed to either amphetamine-based treatments or other treatments uh, like atomoxetine.
2: Yeah. I'm not advocating the use of methylphenidate for kids with ADHD. That's the first thing. The reason that we use methylphenidate is because, number one, the trial that we have was started 10 years ago now. So it's been uh, a long time in existence. And what we needed was a medication that we would be able to subdivide to really titrate properly and to give the 0.5, which is the smallest dose that we give, 0.5 in a a BID divided dose, so 0.25 milligrams per kilogram body weight for children. The reason why we chose such a small amount is because we wanted to see a variation of response. We wanted to see which children would be good responders to a relatively low dosage of medication versus which ones would be a higher response uh, versus which ones, would, uh, which ones would have a good response versus which ones would not have an adequate response. The, what we do is once we get an understanding as to whether these children are good responders with methylphenidate, we then... Um, we then decide to use a long-acting medication because we know that the long-acting medications are much easier to administer to kids. The kids are much more willing to take one pill in the morning and not have to bother taking any in the middle of the day and, and be identified by all their friends as having a problem and you know, needing to go to school nurse to get their medication. So we tend to give a once-a-day medication uh, dose. Uh so, and the type of medication that that we use are anything from, um, you know, methylphenidate, long-acting formulations to a tamoxetine to an amphetamine salt. And, again, different children respond to different medications. And if they don't respond very well to one, we would try them on the other. Okay. Uh, so, uh
1: Oh, makes sense and sounds very similar to the practices here in in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, before I go reading some of the questions that have been posed online, um, I certainly will do our best to get to them. But I also would like to ask the operator if we have any uh, telephone questions before we uh, perhaps go back to uh, some of the online questions. Thank you, sir. And just a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, if you do have a phone question, press star 1 on your touchstone phone. Okay. Okay. Um, So let me just turn back a little bit, because certainly inattention and distractibility comes in a variety of different ways. Um, Have you looked at, or what would you think would you expect in youngsters, let's say with a pervasive developmental disorder, would you expect to have similar findings, you would think, or perhaps different findings based Mm -hmm. on on your work so far? Because certainly uh, with a large number of youngsters now being diagnosed with
2: pervasive developmental disorders, this is something that's on a lot of people's minds. Mm -hmm, Yeah, in our day hospital, we do tend to have quite a few children with pervasive developmental disorders and ADHD combined, and we also have a lot of children with Aspergers, so very very high functioning autistic children with uh, comorbid ADHD. And in when you have a clear cut diagnosis of ADHD. No matter what other diagnosis you have, you treat. You treat the symptoms. So with children with pervasive developmental disorders who have ADHD, we do treat, and we often treat with a sex stimulant, and it does work. Uh, with children with PDD, they may have other uh, pathologies, and we may need to use other approaches or other uh uh, both psychopharmacological but also um, therapeutic approaches.
1: Okay, so uh, certainly similarities but differences as well. Yeah. Um, so let me just ask now, go back to the operator and ask if there are any questions for the, uh, from the phone that we can uh, perhaps uh, grapple with. Yes, sir. It appears we have uh, several uh, questioners queued up. Our first is from the site of Sandy Kokersberger. Please go ahead. Your line is open.
3: Thank you very much, Uh, excellent presentation. I have a question uh, about, is there any difference uh, from clinical perspective about uh, amphetamine uh, products or or trial compared to amphetamine and inattentive and uh, combined type? And secondly, for the inattentive type, what would be uh, measurable criteria beside the academic improvement uh, compared to the combined type where one can... uh, readily see settlement behaviorally and improvement in that aspect. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as far as differences uh, clinically, uh, you're asking whether amphetamines uh, work or not, is that? uh...
3: Uh, Amphetamine compared to methylphenidate, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, in an attentive type, is there any difference when they are used in the combined type? You see,
2: I think what there is is a crying need in the literature to do head-to-head trials of uh, different psychostimulants, so amphetamines versus methylphenidate, and see in different um, subgroups which ones work the best. Um, There are very few studies that look at that. we are not presently doing that but i can give you sort of anecdotal uh experiences as a clinician but again i wish to do that with a, with a, a huge not grain of salt but let's say a boulder of salt saying that it's um you know it's based on uh certain things that we've have observed but it's not evidence-based medicine based on a true clinical trial that examines uh, the use of amphetamine versus uh, methylphenidate. Um, What we have found is that, especially in young children, methylphenidate, especially the combined type, is very, very effective. It, It calms them down quite nicely. Amphetamine is also quite useful. Uh, What is less effective would be the atomoxetine, which is um, more problematic in decreasing the symptomatology of hyperactivity. Now, with older children, uh, what we find is that there's more symptoms of inattention. And the methylphenidate Tends to be, and long acting formulations of methylphenidate tend to be a little uh, less efficacious than the. uh, the amphetamines which work a little bit better and also the atomoxetine, which does tend to work quite well. If you look at the CADRA guidelines which are the Canadian guidelines for um, medication use across the ages, what they tend to do is to um, follow what I just described as far as use of medications. Now, as far as the inattentive type, you asked if, uh, if the best way to assess improvement would be looking at academic improvement or if there are other things. I think if a child is very inattentive, it's not only that they don't do well in school, it's also that they don't uh, participate well in other activities. Uh, so for example, it You know, the ones that are, I'll give you a typical example, the the mother that describes a child who's taking uh, soccer and stays in the middle of the field looking at the flowers while the ball goes by right beside him. So they don't have... um, the the sense of being very attentive to sports activities, to music activities, to to participating in games. They're not uh, chosen as being part of the group quite often. They they globally do not function well, uh, and the family picks up on it. So it's not just uh, academic improvement, but it's overall functioning. Right, so Dr. Grazen, since we're almost running out of time,
1: and I certainly want to get back to as many as I can, let me just again I think point out your the highlights is you know certainly the clinical wisdom you've described is perfect, but you know at the end of the day, I think people you know I think people are looking for what's best, and in the absence of head to head trials we're we're still struggling with our own clinical experiences until those studies that you talked about I think have been performed, which unfortunately are still lacking. Mm-hmm. So we I think we're all on the same page with that but um again um operator we have another question for Dr. Uh, Vizhankov. Yes sir, our next question comes to us from the side of Judy Myers. Please go ahead, your line is open.
2: Yes, I was wondering if you do sleep studies and particularly on the children with uh, the com the slow cognitive tempo and maybe children who possibly aren't sleeping well because of asthma or enlarged um, tonsils or adenoids. Do you do sleep studies as Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do have a sleep lab at the Douglas Hospital It's uh, for ADHD. It's run by Dr. Ruth Gruber, and we have published actually quite a bit with her on uh, sleep problems in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, Yes, we do tend to find that kids with ADHD have more sleep problems. Uh, It's not just uh, slow cognitive tempo. I think it's across the board all children with ADHD, no matter what the the subtype, tend to have problems. And one of the things that we did as an intervention was to see whether increasing the sleep of a child uh, would have an impact on their overall functioning. And what we did was about two years ago, we ran a summer camp where we had um, Using sleep logs and all the rest, and and um, uh, we would get children to uh, sleep one hour more, and then for one week, and then for one week we would restrict their sleep by one hour less than what they would normally get, and we looked at their overall performance, and lo and behold, there definitely was a difference in the sense that children who sleep uh, more hours. We uh, were able to do better on executive functioning than children who have problems falling asleep. Um, most of the problems that we found with sleep are kids who tend to have problems getting to sleep. So the, it, there is a certain percentage, uh, relatively low, but there is a certain percentage of kids that have uh, phase delay. And with these kids, we tended to use the, um, the light box to change, to reset their sleep-wake cycle.
1: So do you go, this is, Dr. Grzynko, because certainly not everybody can get a sleep study who comes mm-hmm. to our clinical practices. The question I pose for you is what kind of questions do you ask, and this will probably be our la- just our last follow-up of the afternoon before I sign off for us, but what kind of questions do you ask in order to decide for yourself whether or not a consideration for a referral for a sleep study is appropriate.
2: Okay, what we tend to ask about is um, whether there might be any apnea during uh, sleep, so whether the the child um, snores a lot, has uh, problems breathing during the night, whether there's any symptoms of restless leg. Where they would get up and get cramps in their in their legs and would need to feel like they they have to get up in the middle of the night, um what we tend to also do is to assess uh sleep hygiene to see if it's just a question that the child is not sleeping well because well, mother has the t v on till uh eleven p m and the child sleeps in the same room as she does. So we have to uh, assess whether the child has um, an environment that's conducive to falling asleep, and if the child does, and, and the child is still not sleeping, to try to assess why. And if we notice any uh, major problems, that you know, the child is unable to fall asleep till four in the morning or three in the morning, or wakes up at at. Uh, very late on weekends when the child does not need to to usually wake up uh, for school, uh, then we might think about, for example, face delay and refer to a sleep lab.
1: So with all that said, in 30 seconds, which is about all we have (laughs) left, how would you convey the findings of your study to your patients?
2: Okay, well, what I would say is that it is important to look at symptoms. It is important to look if there are different uh, subtypes. And if we are able to identify subtypes, and perhaps in the future we would be able to tailor-make treatments appropriate to the um, various pathophysiology that uh, patients do have.
1: Okay, so there you go. So, again, um, let me first again apologize to the folks on the phone and the folks uh, on the Internet who we weren't able to get to today. Uh, um, But, you know, time is uh, limited. So, uh, again, let me thank you, Dr. Grzenko, for joining me today, certainly helping us take this information to help us help our uh, patients. Uh, certainly, again, if you, I'd like to thank everybody on the audience who's uh, joined us. And, I'm, again, apologize if we couldn't get your uh, questions in. But if you send an email to questions at CMEOutfitters, CMEOutfitters, no spaces, one word, dot .com, by December 28th, Dr. Grezenko will certainly be able to answer your questions online and post responses after uh, making sure that she has her holidays, and these will be posted. In, in. the new year, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so the responses yes. will come in the new year. <laughs> At www.NedoscienceCME.com slash Journal Club. I'm Dr. Bob Findling, and I want to thank uh, you all for taking the time to join us today and certainly hope you're able to incorporate the evidence into your practice uh, so we can all take better care of our patients. Thank you.